0: Saturday night, uh, we have been in a series called Myth Busting, and if you've got your Bible, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 2 tonight. So if you got your Bible on you, uh, if not, there's Bibles in the pews, maybe you're, you're swiping on you version, but we're going to be in Colossians 2 tonight digging around. But before we get there, there's actually a pretty big announcement. So if you've been coming here for any amount of time, you may know that we are one church with two locations. So we're meeting here right now in Suffolk and right now in Newport News, there is another campus meeting in Newport News at a a church that right now is North Riverside Baptist Church. But if you were maybe at the business meeting last weekend or you were here a few months ago when we discussed it, they're in the process possibly of donating that building to us. So I just wanted to let you know on March 20th, they're going to have that vote, North Riverside Baptist is. So what I'm telling you for is so you can be praying right? Pray for that process. Pray for unity. Pray for the Holy Spirit to be a part of every decision and every detail. It's exciting for us. Pray that that God will be in that, but also pray for their churches. It's a big decision for them as well. But let's be praying over that because that's a big moment for City Life. Again, one church in two locations, but that's March 20th that North Riverside Baptist is going to be voting. But here in Suffolk, We've been in this series, Myth Busting, where we're talking about undoing the headaches and the heartaches that can be inflicted by half truths. And we've looked at everything from don't judge, to God's love is colorblind, to women shouldn't teach, all these different topics in scripture, and we've tackled them to see what the greater content and context is. And so, when we kicked off this series nearly two months ago, we read a passage from Second Peter three that I want to return to tonight. It's Second Peter chapter three verses sixteen through eighteen, and Peter says it's towards the ends of his letter to this church, he says Paul's letters, speaking of the apostle Paul, right, who writes much of the New Testament, he says contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures, to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, in this passage, Peter warns about distortions of God's truth, and not just in Paul's letter, but he also says in other scriptures as well. He says these distortions, they can derail us. They can be destructive. We can be carried away by them. As Galatians 5.9 says in the Amplified Version, the verse we've looked at again and again in this sermon series, that these half-truths can pervert the concept of faith and ultimately mislead the church. And what's kind of encouraging to me is that Peter, a fellow apostle, a fellow leader in the church, would look at Paul's letters and say, you know what, they're kind of confusing. Right, so if there's somebody in Paul's context, right, walking alongside Paul that would say what he was writing was confusing, then I don't feel bad when 2,000 years later I'm reading some of these letters and saying, huh, you know, asking questions, looking for answers, wrestling with the text. And the whole reason we're in this series is so that I can encourage us again that, man, to, to wrestle with the text and to ask questions and seek answers. Sometimes that's not about a lack of faith. It's because we love truth. We don't want to settle for a half-truth. We want to walk in the full truth that God gives us. We've talked a little bit about this idea of strongholds, and so often we jump to uh, the demonic or footholds in our lives. But when you read the New Testament, when you read through Scripture, it's often speaking to distorted views, seeing incorrectly, broken mindsets and misconceptions that are based on half-truths. You know, David Wilkerson wants to find a stronghold as a mindset, value system, or thought process that hinders your growth, the growth of others, and you exalting Jesus over everything in your life. Strongholds are based on half-truths and they can cause headaches and they can cause heartaches, but the good news is that Paul says in Corinthians that we have the power to demolish strongholds. Jesus says in John chapter 8 that, that while half-truths may hurt, Jesus says that, hey, when you grasp the full truth and you understand the truth and you know the truth, the truth will set you free. in John chapter 8 where Jesus says that, but in Colossians 2 verse 15, if you've turned there tonight, it says in the New Living Translation, it says, he, being Jesus, disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities, those supernatural forces of evil operating against us. That's a paraphrase from the Amplified Version. It says, he shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. It's a powerful verse that I want to dig into tonight, but before I go deep into it, I want to read the context and the verses around it. I want to read Colossians 2. I'm going to read verses 13 through 20. Paul says to the church, he says, you were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. But then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. So don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. For these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come. And Christ himself is that reality. Don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial or the worship of angels, saying that they have had visions about these things. Their sinful minds have made them proud and they are not connected to Christ, the head of the body. For he holds the whole body together with its joints and ligaments and it grows as God nourishes it. He says, you have died with Christ, and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that just as we were in worship, God, that those words would impact our hearts and minds. We pray that, Holy Spirit, you would direct us in truth, guide us in truth, help us to graduate from the half-truths that would hold us back and restrict us as the church. God, help us to walk fully in the calling you have for us, both as individuals and as a church, and help the truth that we walk in tonight unleash that. In Jesus' name, everybody said. Amen. So let's play a, a quick game, a little pop quiz. Who said it? Right, so I'm going to give you a quote, and then you tell me who this quote is attributed to. All right? That makes sense? All right. First one. Silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. Sounds like Martin Luther King, right? It's another civil rights activist, but one that was fighting for social justice in Germany during Nazi Germany. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Boom. (laughs) Anthony wants something. You good, you good. What about this one? You do not have a soul, you are a soul, you have a body. C.S. Lewis, nailed it. Last one, preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. Francis of Assisi, Anthony with two. Chalk that up. Nice. But what if I told you each one of these quotes those people didn't say? Yes. <laughs> None of those quotes were actually spoken by those people. It's funny because, <laughs> Anthony, I don't know what you're reading. I don't know where you're getting your information from. But uh, <laughs> that Bonhoeffer quote is used to sway people, right, politically to choose the lesser of two evils. The, the C.S. Lewis quote, you look at C.S. Lewis's writing. If there's animals talking, the trees are alive, he valued creation, right? He valued our bodies in the material realm. He didn't, like, disqualify it or, or, or not see it as valuable. And then I, I've hit on this one before. Francis of Assisi, you preach the gospel at all times when necessary, use words. We love that because it's like our get out of the Great Commission free card. We're like, I can just live my life. I'm got to share my faith. I don't have to teach a disciple anybody. Oh, except Jesus said to do that. And Francis of Assisi, I'm just going to keep going. He clearly thought words were uh, important because he was known to preach to birds and animals. Like, he he just had to tell everybody and everything that moved about the goodness of Jesus Christ. But then there's this quote I was reflecting on. I must have been studying for this because the quote is, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he doesn't exist. And I was trying to remember, I was like, where did I hear that first? Who said that? Exactly, right? I'm thinking... I'm thinking it was somebody uh, clever, like it was probably Ben Franklin or Mark Twain or, you know, I was thinking like maybe it was Augustine or, or like a spiritual heavyweight. No, this, it's been said in various ways, but the source of that quote that I apparently have memorized is from The Usual Suspects, a movie from 1995 where a character is talking about Kaiser Sosa, right, this, this elusive suspect that the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. So I was looking for the source. I'm looking around. There's people that are convinced that that's straight out of the Bible or it's said in this verse here or this verse there. But you know, if you do read the Bible, the Bible certainly lets us know of the devil's existence. There are over 20 New Testament mentions of the devil or the evil one. For instance, 2 Corinthians 4.4 says, Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. First John 5:19 says, we know that we are children of God and that the world around us is under the control of the evil one. You know, these verses and the verses like it speak to a very important reality in our walk. And that is that every day we take part in spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is a normative part of the Christian life. Whether you've been saved for 10 minutes or 10 years, you've probably realized that when you're born again, it's not into a quiet and peaceful maternity ward. You're born again onto a battlefield. Right? That's the reality we walk in as believers. So we're not called to be cavalier or nonchalant about evil. Our enemy certainly exists. And we're called to, in Scripture, stand firm, be strong, to resist. And in Peter's letter to the church, he says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour He's not a lion, but, but Peter's saying he's like one, right? He wants to devour. He wants to feed. I think our Facebook feeds are aptly titled because that's one way he easily devours our hearts and minds. But you're not ready for that sermon. You're not ready for that sermon. But he's like a lion. It's a unique descriptive. And I say it's unique because for all the mentions of the enemy, especially in the gospel and the epistles, there's not a whole lot of descriptions. There's not a whole lot of details. Paul, for instance, mentions the evil one in all of his letters outside of his shortest one, Philemon. Yet Paul never digs into any detail about these powers and principalities that we face in terms of hierarchies or lists or classifications. In fact, if you read everything Paul has to say about our enemy, it's not that he cares so much about the powers in and of themselves, but his main goal, his emphasis and his focus, and the one we should adopt is to show us and remind us that they're defeated. You know, yes, we are born into spiritual warfare. That's a reality that we should be aware of at all times. But the devil isn't waging an all-out war as much as he's staging uprisings. In the New Testament, he comes across much more as an annoyance or a nuisance than an overpowering force. Spiritual warfare is a useful term, and it reminds us of the reality of the unseen, but it is potentially problematic if we think of warfare and think the outcome is unsure. One of Paul's sole reasons For speaking to the enemy is to remind us of this reality, that Christ kicked his tail at the cross. Again, Colossians 2.15 reads, He disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities, those supernatural forces of evil operating against us. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. There are spiritual rulers and authorities, powers and principalities. Paul writes elsewhere in Ephesians 6 and tells us explicitly that we do battle with these powers and principalities, but we should remember that they're not in control. They're subject to the only one who is in control. Again, the one who all but publicly spanked them at the cross, Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis once really said, Anthony, (laughs) in the intro to his book, Screwtape Letters, that there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence But the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. You know, I think different streams and denominations in Christianity fall into different camps. But in some circles, as well as I would say our Western culture at large, we've all but built a mythology around the devil. where he's a cartoon character based on aspects of Dante's Inferno, maybe Milton's Paradise Lost, those... uh, Plethora of Frank Peretti novels my parents had around the house when I was a kid, right? What is it, like Piercing the Darkness? Those were entertaining. I read them, right? All those different books. You talk about movies, Constantine. What was the one with Arnold Schwarzenegger? Where he, I'm looking at Nate because he knows every movie from the 90s. End of Days, right? He fights the devil in like a, sa- a cathedral sanctuary. All these wild, imaginative takes on the enemy and the devil. But all the juicy details we have on the devil are more likely to be urban legends than from the Bible, because the Bible, for all its mentions, doesn't give a whole lot of details. Ultimately, the Bible says less about the devil than most Christians do. And the danger here and with other content in the Bible is when we dive so deep into the obscure that we miss the obvious. Like sometimes I can dive so deep into like the, the prophecies in Revelation, trying to dig around that I forget the obvious. Hey, Jesus wins, right? We can dig so deep into the obscure with the enemy that we forget the obvious. He's defeated, right? Jesus won at the cross. Our chief concern shouldn't be that we be carried away by powers of possession, as much as we should be concerned that we'll get carried away, like Peter said, by distortions and half-truths and his deception. And this isn't new to humanity. The ancient world was both fascinated and fearful of spiritual powers. Everything from health to your love life to your success in your career was seemingly at their mercy. When Paul wrote the church the Colossians, it was a, in a culture consumed with elemental spirits that made humanity seem like playthings to greater powers. Matter of fact, there was a, a heretical teacher, I'm going to butcher his name, it's Elkassai, if you're, if you're writing, it's E-L-C-H-A-S-A-I. But he was teaching elements of astrology sewn into Christianity. Like when he taught that the Sabbath needed to be honored, it was because the powers of the stars prevailed on that day. So when we read verses 16 through 19 of Colossians 2, it begins to bring a little clarity to what exactly Paul's talking about in those verses. And when we look at that passage and we look at those verses, we see that these teachings made prey of people. They passed judgments on them and made legalistic regulations. And these were the kind of teachings, again, that Peter warned us of in our opening passage, distortions that derail us and can carry us away. But we live in a scientific enlightened culture Right. Certainly in our enlightened American culture, there's no room for stuff like this. But if you look at our culture, right at the heart of our interests, you'll find things like tarot cards or astrology that isn't that far from what the, was being taught to the church. Only for the most part, our culture, I don't think, blames malevolent things that happen on spiritual forces, but we often look to them for good luck or, or guidance in superstitious ways. But if what Paul says in Colossians 2 is true, if no other power can rival Christ, they've been exposed to what they are a sham. then we don't have to look anywhere else for what we need in life. We've got everything we need in Jesus Christ. Because we so often try to add to it, whether it's our own good works, you can read Galatians about that when Paul addresses that, or whether it's superstitious things that we try to add to what Jesus did at the cross. Ultimately, whenever you try to add to what Jesus did at the cross, you end up taking away from it. And when you get focused on Hocus Pocus, you can lose focused on Jesus Christ. Yet some folks in the church, it's like they claim to see a devil behind every bush, right? They show up late all the time, and it's not that they have a problem with showing up on time. No, I, I struggle with the spirit of tardiness, right? Or uh, I've heard this one too, like they don't want to claim that they're sick, so it's, it's like a, did she call? like a sniffle devil. I'm like, no, you, you have a cold. Take some medicine, right? Get better. Take care of yourself. Take some vitamin C. Trying to think of all the mo- things my mom would have told me to do, but We can end up trying to find a devil behind every bush. And, you know, as a churchy slogan goes, when in doubt, cast it out, right? You ever heard anybody say that? Really? You've heard all those other quotes. You ain't heard that? Just kidding. (laughs) Look, we have an enemy, right? The Bible makes this clear and advises that we keep this in mind. And Paul never discounts the fact that the enemy exists and actively works against us, and neither should we. But when you look at the devil as the source of everything you see is bad in this life, you can walk in error. I want to look at two errors, and then I want to look at how the full truth can unleash us to be the church we're called to be. But first, the two errors that we can walk in. The first is when we, sometimes we can credit things to the devil that are actually God. They're actually from God. See, the Bible doesn't present to us a form of dualism where good and evil are equals that are wrestling for humanity. Right? This isn't the classic melodrama of good and evil that we see in like our Marvel movies and our favorite superhero movies where they're going toe to toe. They're pretty equal. That's what makes the drama so good. But the spiritual reality that scripture tells us is you find one almighty supreme being, God. And this is how Jeremiah could ask the rhetorical question in the book of Lamentations. While Israel is at the height of its suffering and in exile, he says, who has spoken and it has come to pass unless the Lord has ordained it? Does not the Most High send both calamity and good? See, what you realize when you read throughout Scripture is that our enemy is not omnipotent, he's not omniscient, he's not omnipresent. And while he may be uh, involved in the events in our lives, trying to sow lies, trying to sow deceptions and distortions, we shouldn't give him credit for what he shouldn't get credit for. For instance, you look through Scripture, the greater context and content of Scripture, the two men who you could argue suffered more than anybody in Scripture, first being Job, right? You look at Job, suffered loss after loss, attack after attack. But if you read the first two chapters of Job, you know none of that would have happened unless it passed through God's permission first. We don't understand why, but it's what we see in Scripture. You look at Jesus, right, probably suffered more than anybody in Scripture because he felt the full weight of our sin on the cross. Not just the physical pain and suffering, but the mental angst of sin. And what held him on that cross wasn't the power of the enemy, wasn't those Roman soldiers. He could have called a whole legion of angels down and been off the cross like that. No, it was this love. He was in control every moment. See, God is in control of all things. It's sometimes when we attribute his power and omnipotent to the enemy, it can hurt. Because sometimes when we attribute the bad things that happen to us to the enemy's plans, we'll view them in a negative way because it's from the enemy. But if it's from God, we understand that he can use it for good. He can use it for his glory. He can use it to grow us. See, when we say something like, that's the devil, we think, well, that's bad. But when you realize sometimes God allows things to happen in our lives that he can use for his glory, for his good, and to grow us, it gives us a different perspective. There are some things that happen to us in this world that that God allows. There's some things that happen in this world because we're living in the world. Kind of like we talked about last week. And When we attribute everything that happens to us to the enemy, we forget that we fight spiritual warfare on three fronts. Right? There's the enemy. There's also the world. It's the second front. I won't spend a lot of time here, but what's meant by this is the structures and systems and ideologies in our world that run counter to the kingdom of God. It's kind of the counterfeit kingdom here on earth that's bought into the lies of the enemy. And boy, do we love to go at war with the world, right? Especially from our keyboards. It's so funny to me that when we point to the world's problems, it's always those people over there doing those things we would never do, right? If we were going to be asked what's wrong with the world today, A lot of us would probably have a list at arm's length that we could point to, right? It's those people doing those things with those beliefs, those habits over there. But a newspaper once set out an inquiry to famous authors, and the list of authors they asked included G.K. Chesterton. And it asked the question, what's wrong with the world today? Chesterton's reply was short and sweet. It said, dear sir, I am, signed G.K. Chesterton. You know, when asked what's wrong I think our flesh so often wants to look out the window and point figures rather than look in the mirror, look at ourselves. The battlefield that scripture gives us a focus on It makes a focal point that we often forget is ourselves, our flesh. If I really think about it, so much of what I endure in life that I really wouldn't like to walk through is because of my flesh, and because of my decisions. When you look at Scripture, sure, the devil had a hand in sin entering the world, but the Bible by far attributes the world's problems not to the devil, but to human sin. When we read that passage in Colossians, the cause for Christ's death is not tied to the enemy, but to sinful nature, our flesh. Said in Second Corinthians, or excuse me, Colossians 2 verse 13 that we opened with, said that you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. which in the amplified version, it adds your worldliness, your manner of life. You know why it's so tempting to look for a a demon behind every bush? Because they prove quite useful in excusing our sin and my manner of life. What's responsible for this pain? Not me, right? Nothing I did, right? Not my depravity. It's something else entirely. You know, in the 70s, the comedian Flip Wilson, he had a routine and he made famous the phrase, the devil made me do it, right? (laughs) He would have these conversations in a solo routine. I'm not even going to attempt it, but you know, his wife would buy an expensive dress or run the car into a tree, and the excuse would be, the devil made me do it, and it became a national catchphrase. I think sometimes we actually take that and run with it, or we get carried away in another way. We talked about last week, I was talking to somebody before service about this again, that we live, as it says in Romans 8, in a groaning creation that's subject to decay, Yet, you know what, when we suffer a couple consecutive crummy moments in a day, all of a sudden we're we're under attack, right? As if we shouldn't expect such in a fallen, broken world. You know, I would say that our preoccupation with the devil attacking us individually with a demon behind every bush is kind of the churchy version of in our culture, everybody's got haters, right? Everybody's got something to say about their haters. Probably can only name one or two, but we're all convinced there's a legion of haters somewhere, right, that, that hate us. This is kind of the churchy version of that. It's another way that we place ourselves at the center of the universe and its conflict. What's my point, though? What's the harm we see here? It's that an overemphasis on the enemy allows us to overvalue ourselves. Look, Satan, as we see in Scripture, has no real power to work against God, but he works through half-truths, distortions of truths, and flat-out lies. One of the lies that we take the bait on again and again in life is, I'm good, I don't need to change. See, if we can push responsibility to the enemy, then we can dodge responsibility. We can dodge accountability, confession, repentance, and ultimately, we don't change. This is why the New Testament doesn't encourage these thoughts in this pattern, but it hands us the full truth. It says, hey, the bad news, you're far worse than you thought, right? Colossians 2.13, you're dead. (laughs) That's a pretty bad situation to be in. Yet the good news is that Jesus, as it says in Colossians 2, right, he takes the price of our sins. It says in Romans, while we were still sinners, he died for us. Yeah, all this talk of our flesh, doesn't God make us new creations? Yes, but our flesh is this stubborn predisposition towards rebellion. It's what scripture also calls the sinful nature. It's what gets confused and tempted by the enemy in this world. That's why Paul's concern isn't that we be overpowered by the enemy, his main concern is that we would align with his lies, his distortions, and his deceptions. And it's why Paul, when he makes these some 20 mentions of the enemy and the devil in the New Testament, he really only does it for two reasons. The first is to remind us that he's defeated again and again. He reminds us again and again he's defeated. And two, to remind us not to fall victim to his schemes and his strongholds, to be hurt by half-truths. See, when we walk in fear or fascination with the enemy, we see multiple ways that we could be carried away in error. The first is we, again, we see attention is diverted from God to the enemy, and what we credit to the enemy becomes negative instead of something that God can use. And secondly, attention becomes shifted from myself to the enemy, and I can push responsibility from my flesh to what's going on over there, avoiding confession, accountability, and change. You know, but the hurt caused by this half-truth that I want to focus on from here out, because it cripples the church and its calling again and again, is that when we get this focus wrong and we buy the half truth, we lose our courage. We walk in the stronghold of fear or the stronghold of timidity instead of power, love, and a sound mind. What do I mean? Well, here's an example. Raj, maybe you met him, maybe you haven't. I should have put a picture up here because he, he rarely is here anymore. But his, his full name is Shivraj. For a long time, I said Shivraj. Found out like six months after we were about to adopt this kid that I've been saying it wrong the whole time. It's Shivraj. And that was the name given to him by his mother at birth. That's special to I. We don't want to take that away from him, his his culture, his mother, what he's coming from. So his birth certificate now reads Titus Shivraj White. And I'll share this with him eventually. But if he becomes one of those spiritual heavyweights, right, C.S. Lewis, A.W. Tozer, R.C. Sproul, G.K. Chesterton, T.S. White, sounds pretty cool, right? So... (laughs) T.S. White, he's going to raise him up. Then on all the books he's going to write about Jesus, write T.S. White's what's going to be under there. But the name Shivraj means Lord Shiva. It's a deity in the Hindu religion that's uh, untamed love and destruction. That's what the attributes for this God. So there are adoptive parents who have adopted from India in the groups that we're a part of, conversations we're a part of, that would tell us we are certifiably insane for keeping that name. Like we're giving the enemy a foothold in Raj's life. We might as well roll out a red carpet for sin and depravity in his life. See, this is exactly what happens when we credit the enemy for too much and try to see him behind every bush. Fear takes over. The stronghold of timidity tackles power, love, and a sound mind. And in our attempts to live sacred, we end up living scared. Just switch a couple letters in there, and instead of living sacred, set apart, we live scared because we treat sin and evil like cooties, right? Right? But just as you grow up and you realize, oh, actually, girls don't have cooties, right? When you mature. When you mature in your faith, you realize, oh, sin doesn't happen like cooties. It doesn't happen through osmosis, right? Sin and evil is not a contagious disease. It's a conscious decision, right? Sin and evil doesn't spread like a contagious disease, but it spreads through conscious decisions and rebellion. What do I mean? Again, there, there is evil. There is an evil one. Yes, he's been defeated. Yes, we can give him footholds in our lives, but we do that through sin and rebelling against God, not through osmosis, <laughs> not through coming into contact with somebody who doesn't live like we do. <laughs> Preach on the devil, you never know what might happened. <laughs> yes, we can open ourselves up to the enemy through sin and ignorance. But for those in Jesus Christ, those forces are impotent. The cross showed them for the sham they are. And when we treat sin and evil like cooties, we run from anything we think might contaminate us, like the countries in World War Z or the, or the people in Bird Box, right? We put up walls. We, we hunker down. We don't want to get in touch with anything that might contaminate us with the virus that's going around. We want to stay pure, right? So we step into isolation, create our own community, sometimes our own subculture. But going all the way back to Hinduism, that's like the goal in Hinduism is to achieve nirvana, to escape in a way. And in similar ways, many Christian groups have made it their aim to be physically and geographically set apart and separate in history from the Essenes who did it on the shores of the Dead Sea to escape the depravity that surrounded them to monks that have done it in history. There's a value, certainly, in taking retreats and escaping. And all the women that just went to the said, amen, right? There's value in that, taking retreats, getting away for a while, drawing near to God in that way. Yes, being set apart and separate, they're both biblical ideas, but they can become distorted when we adopt that as escapism. There's two big problems when we adopt being separate and set apart as just escaping from the world. The first is when we separate ourselves from the world. And what we would deem depraved, we forget that we bring something so key with us, the root of the problem, me, my flesh. You know, the Russian author Alexander Solzhenitsyn once said, if only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. You know, I would tell you that a mark of Christian maturity is understanding what the Bible truly means when it talks about being separate, when it talks about being set apart. Because in Jesus' prayer in John 17, when he prays for the church, it's John chapter 17, verses 17 through 18. And this is the amplified version. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Set them apart for your purposes. Make them holy. Your word is truth. Just as you commissioned and sent me into the world, I also have commissioned and sent them, believers, into the world. So we see in this passage, we're set apart for a reason. We're set apart for God's purposes for us. And what are his purposes for us? It's pretty explicit in these verses, in Jesus's prayer, and in Jesus's life. Our purpose is to be commissioned and sent into the world. To make contact and to make disciples. Not to isolate, to infiltrate. You know, when the Bible talks about being set apart and separate, it's not about our physical position, but our spiritual condition. Right? The condition of our hearts. You can be different. And that doesn't mean you have to be distant. You can live both set apart and you can be sent. You can live separate and yet be sent into the world to be a light in dark places. You know, when Jesus was sent into humanity and he touched the, quote, unclean, he didn't become unclean. No, they, they became clean. And when we do the opposite and separate ourselves out of fear, we forget that greater is he that is in me than anything else that is in the world. Jesus shows us that the proper practice of separation is about being separate from sin, not from people, right, from sin, not society. Yet being separate from sin is a big enough deal, right? We fight sin. We fight temptation daily. But I think sometimes the strategy is set up for failure, like the charge of the light brigade or little bighorn. And why? Why? Because too often, again, we look through the window, We point to the culture as the source of sin. It's that music, it's those movies, it's drugs and alcohol. That's the source of sin. And it's all well and good to avoid certain things. There's value in this. Value in living a life with uh, boundaries, guardrails, accountability. We preached an entire sermon on this not too long ago. But we're in for a rude awakening if we think sin is caused by something out there and outside of us rather than inside of us. James says in chapter 1, verse 14, each of you is tempted... When you are dragged away by your own evil desire and enticed. You know, the root cause of sin in our lives is not an external pull. It's an internal push from within. The problem lies within. And sure, the enemy uses external things to exploit this internal push. Hence the value of convictions, accountability, guardrails, and alike. But ultimately, again, the problem lies within. If the problem were external, the solution would be simple. Avoid those things. Bunker down, retreat, and wait for Jesus to come back. But God's kingdom is called to advance. When Jesus says the church will hold up against the gates of hell, he's not saying it will withstand the the worst attacks. I'm no experienced warrior. I'm not Maximus Decimus Meridius up here, but I don't need to be one to know that gates don't attack, right? The reference isn't a defensive one. It's an offensive one. Jesus is saying, look, you're called to infiltrate. To go as far as the gates of hell and to do so without timidity, but with power, love, and discipline. If I can have the worship team come up, as I promised, we're going back into worship. Francis Chan once wrote an entire book on hell. It right? sounds morbid, but trust me, it's good. Jesus, he says in this book, it's called Erasing Hell. He says, Jesus didn't speak of hell so that we could study, debate, and write books about us. He gave us these passages so that we would live holy lives. You know, I would close tonight and remind you of a s- same statement with the devil. Right? The Bible says enough about the devil so the world will be convinced that, oh, he exists. But the Bible speaks of the devil not so that we can debate the details, become consumed by, fearful of what we don't know. It reminds us of the devil again and again to remind us of two things. One, that he's been defeated. And two, that his remaining weapon, all he's got left is half-truths, deception distortions of truth that he uses as bait to get us to buy into him. He can't rely on strength, so he relies on deception. Our chief fear, therefore, shouldn't be being possessed, but what half-truths and deceptions are in our possession that we're living by? Misconceptions that are causing us to misstep as we try to follow Christ, causing me to even walk in fear. What are the lies I bought into? Because we aren't called to isolate ourselves, but to infiltrate the world. We aren't called to flee from the first sign of evil, We're called to reclaim what the enemy has taken. We're called to resist the devil, not run from him. And when we do, it says he's the one that flees. This word flee that James uses and that was written when it speaks to Jesus in the desert being tempted by the devil, this word flee speaks to running from a superior power. It's not running from us. It's running from the God in you that's greater than anything in the world. It's what the enemy did in the desert after tempting Jesus. It says he fled and the angels came and ministered to him. Unlike the first Adam that bought the deception of the enemy and fell. Jesus didn't buy his distortions. He he replied to the the word of God that that Satan tried to tempt him with, with the word of God. And he kept it moving. And the result was that he pushed onward all the way to the cross. And the result of the cross is that the one damning, condemning weapon that the enemy had was stripped from him, unforgiven sin. Jesus takes, as it said in Colossians 2, the passage we read, he takes the penalty of our sinful nature, the sins of our flesh, and he takes that upon himself at the cross. So I would tell you tonight that the enemy has been holding that against you. If he's weaponized your brokenness and he's he's holding it over your head and he's trying to keep you from Christ because of it, whether it's for the first time or you just feel like you've used up God's grace, it's for the hundredth time and he's trying to say, nah, there's not enough. Holding your brokenness against you. No, Jesus at the cross. All his strategies and his power, they're ashamed. You have the ability to step into God's presence tonight and receive grace and receive mercy. Be healed, be made whole, and be made holy through the power of the cross. So I would tell you tonight, come. Don't wait to change and get better to come. It's not the, the healthy, that need a doctor, it's the sick. Come to him just as you are. But then also, maybe for others it's just giving up the stronghold of fear, the stronghold of timidity, to walk in power and to understand that the power available to us in the Holy Spirit is not this power for escape and escaping difficulty. It's the power to live godly in an evil world, to bring light to dark places. You can walk in the spirit of love and boldly step into moments with people, not fearing them because they live different than you or don't believe what you do, but you can genuinely love and listen and build a bridge that the Holy Spirit can walk over. And then lastly, the power of discipline. Learning to say yes to the Spirit and no to our flesh. Yes to our Spirit and no to temptation. Maybe there's a habit you haven't been able to break. You say yes to your flesh and no to the Spirit again and again. Let's step into the presence of God. Let's worship. If you need prayer, Tim and Leonard are in the back. They would love to pray for you. I'll be right here. I would love to pray for you. You know, we're going to go back and sing good grace again. But as I was driving here tonight, I was thinking of the lyrics from, uh, no longer slaves, where it says, you surround me with a song of deliverance from my enemies until all my fears are gone. And I pray that as we worship and close in worship tonight, as we sing through this song and its chorus again and again, that God would surround us with a song of deliverance from our enemies until all our fears are gone. Yes, there is an enemy, but we don't have to fear. We can walk in power. We can walk in love and a sound mind. Let's worship. Let's praise tonight. Let's stand.
1: You know, uh, uh, I, I know "Good Grace" is a new song for some of you. And uh, me coming here, you know, I knew nobody. I didn't even know the team, and uh, we just messed together. It was awesome, and we did uh, we did "Good Grace." And after we were done with rehearsal, like everybody in here was, you know, singing, uh, uh, you know, singing the tune to it. You know, humming, humming the melody of the chorus, the bridge. And I thought to myself. What if I had the same effect on people when I told them about Jesus I walked into my workplace and I told my coworkers that I go to church and I feel the devil discourages us that maybe we're not good enough to tell them about, about the goodness of God, about His good grace. I have a lot of baggage in my life and I, and I know he, he tells me I'm not good enough. So in this song, we talk about the heavens swinging wide open. So I just pray tonight, God, I just pray that we can swing the heavens wide open, God, in our workplace, God, in our homes, in our families, God, in broken marriages, God. pray that we can just, the heavens swing open in our our schools, God. Father God, in our our social media feed, God, I pray that we can just, we just show these people Jesus, God. go up as the walls come down In creation, everything with breath we be the sound In the children, clean dance where hearts could just down So these Swing wide, let's declare it let's Swing wide, all you have Creation, everything we've heard, repeat the sound of the children. Clean hands, pure hearts, good grace, good God. His name is Jesus.